Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Can you all hear me okay? Let me do a quickie test here. All right. Uh, well, I want to thank you all and welcome everyone. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to make this uh, history presentation. It's going to be a, a one-hour timeline history of AA and how AA started in Houston, Fort Worth, and Dallas. In the interest of time, the presentation is going to end at the year 1971. And that's when co-founder Bill W. passed away. Our 12th step, carrying the message, is the basic service of the AA Fellowship. It is our principal aim and main reason for our existence. Therefore, AA is more than a set of principles. It's a society of alcoholics in action. We must carry the message, else we ourselves can wither, and those who haven't been given the truth may die. Carrying the message is the historical service that gave birth to the AA Fellowship, and AA's first group in Akron, Ohio. AA's co-founders, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, first met in Akron in early May 1935. Dr. Bob later went on a four-day binge at a medical convention, and Bill W. helped him through three days of sobering up to get ready for a scheduled surgery. Dr. Bob had his last drink on the day of the surgery, which is celebrated as June 10, 1935, and AA marks this date as the beginning of the AA Fellowship. In late June, Dr. Bob and Bill W. visited Bill D. at the City Hospital of Akron. Bill D., who would become AA number three, was a prominent attorney and had been hospitalized eight times in 1935 for his drinking. On July 4th, he checked out of the hospital never to drink again. Akron's group number one, which is AA's first group, marks the beginning as the date that Bill D. left the hospital. Bill W. left Akron and returned to New York City in August of 1935, and he focused his efforts on getting the New York group established. His home became a halfway house of sorts. Ebby T., the man who originally carried a message of recovery to Bill, came to live there in November. In April 1937, Ebby got drunk after two and a half years of sobriety, and he began an on-again, off-again pattern of drinking and sobriety that would stay with him. Dr. Bob and Bill W. met again in Akron in late 1937. There were two groups then and about 40 sober members, and more than half of them were sober for over a year. And this was actually a very remarkable success story, since all these sober members had previously been considered hopeless and beyond any help at all. Bill had ideas for a chain of AA hospitals, paid missionaries, and a book of experience to carry the message to distant places. Dr. Bob liked the book idea, but not the hospitals and paid missionaries. In a meeting of the Akron group, Bill's ideas narrowly passed by a single vote. The New York group was more enthusiastic, and this milestone marked the decision to write the big book. In April 1938, the writing of the big book began at Honors Dealers, 17 William Street, Newark, New Jersey. It was the business office of New York member Hank P., whose big book story is The Unbeliever. Bill W. wrote draft outlines on legal pads, and he dictated the expanded text to Ruth Hopp, who was then the honors dealer's secretary. Each week, he would read the drafts to those who met at his home, and edited copies were sent to Dr. Bob for further review and editing by the Akron members. As they worked their way through the chapters, the New York and Akron members also wrote the personal stories to be included in the book. The book texts and stories were completed in January 1939. 400 manuscript copies were sent out for review and comments. A New York member, Jim B., suggested the phrases, God as we understood him, and power greater than ourselves, be added to the steps and basic text. Bill W. wrote in a July 1953 Grapevine article, quote, Those expressions, as we so well know today, prove lifesavers for many an alcoholic. Jim B., whose big book story is The Vicious Cycle, 
started AA in Philadelphia, and he helped start AA in Baltimore, Maryland as well. The manuscript review copies were returned by March, and then they produced very few changes. However, a major change did occur when a Montclair, New Jersey psychiatrist named Dr. Howard suggested toning down the use of the term you must and changing it to we ought or we should. Tom Uzell, an editor at Collier's and New York University faculty member, edited the manuscript and reduced it to around 400 pages. The cuts mainly came from the personal stories. After the editing, Bill W., Hank P., Ruth Hock, and Dorothy S. of Cleveland drove to Cornwall, New York, to deliver the heavily marked-up manuscript to the Cornwall Press. The markup manuscript... <laughs> The markup manuscript contained hundreds of accumulated editing changes. The manager of Cornwall Press almost sent them back to type up a clean copy. And Hank P. convinced the manager to accept the manuscript on condition that they would correct galley proofs as they came off the press. They checked into a hotel and they spent the next several days proofreading in the galleys. Proofreading the galleys. Uh, just as an aside, we have a copy of this manuscript back in the archives exhibit. Uh, you're welcome to look through it. It's a, it's a blast. Uh, the two markup manuscript pages shown are the beginning of Chapter 5, how it works. Uh, many pages had handwritten notations from top to bottom, and almost all the notations were by Hank P. In April 1939, 4,650 copies of the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous were published at $3.50 a copy. That would be the equivalent of, to $57 a copy today. It was a very expensive book for its time. The printer, Edward Blackwell of the Cornwall Press, was told to use the thickest paper in his shop, and the large bulky volume became known as the Big Book, and the name has stuck ever since. In A.A. Comes of Age, Bill W. wrote that the idea behind the thick, large paper was to, quote, convince the alcoholics that he was getting his money's worth. The book had eight Roman and 400 Arabic numbered pages, and the doctor's opinion started as page one, and the basic text ended at page 179, not 164. As an aside, the, the, the General Service Conference this year approved the publication of an exact facsimile of the first printing, first edition to be released next year for the 75th anniversary of the big book. I think it's going to go around for uh, 15 bucks a copy, but it's going to be exact. The, the color of the book cover, the thickness of the pages. So it'll be fun. The foreword to the first edition contains many of the key principles that later shaped the traditions and the AA preamble. On May 10, 1939, the Cle Cleveland members, led by pioneer member Clarence S., whose big book story is Home Brewmeister, announced that they would meet separately from Akron. Their first meeting was at the home of Abby G., whose big book story is he thought he could drink like a gentleman. After almost four years, this was AA's third group. The story of AA in Texas began in Cleveland in late 1939. A newspaperman, Larry J., age 40, and all of 100 pounds, was found in freezing weather with no coat, a lung collapse from tuberculosis, and near death in dreadful physical shape. Larry slowly recovered at a Cleveland hospital from DTs, malnutrition, and exposure. Cleveland AA members, including Clarence S., visited him regularly and took care of him. Because of his physical ailments, Larry was told that he would be healthier in a warm climate. Larry had never attended an AA meeting, and he boarded a train to live and work in Houston with nothing more than a big book in hand. Larry had a spiritual awakening on the train while reading the big book. Dorothy S. of Cleveland wrote to Ruth Hawk on January 19, 1940, describing Larry as a brilliant newspaperman who was completely down and out owing to John Barleycorn. She asked the New York office to provide help to Larry in starting a group in Houston. Upon arriving in Houston, Larry J. sought out Alan C. Bartlett, the editor of the Houston Press. At first, Bartlett refused to see him since Larry's reputation as an alcoholic had preceded him. Bartlett was persuaded to give Larry five minutes of his time as long as Larry promised not to ask him for a job. Five minutes stretched into two hours, and Larry persuaded Bartlett to run a series of articles on AA, which he wrote with an anonymous byline. 
The articles were extremely well written, and they generated much favorable publicity for AA. The articles were published in January and February, and soon after, Larry J. was joined by Roy Y. and later Ed H. The articles also attracted the first Texas woman AA member, Benita C., who later married Larry J. And this began the first AA group in Texas. Their first meeting was on March 15, 1940, at the Houston YMCA. They met on Tuesdays with as many as 25 attending. However, it was often a different 25 each meeting. <laughs> on February 8, 1940, John D. Rockefeller Jr. held a dinner for AA at the Union League Club in New York City. Nelson Rockefeller hosted in the absence of his ill father. And it produced much favorable national publicity and raised $2,200. And that would be the equivalent of $36,000 today in today's dollars from the attendees. And almost half of that came from Rockefeller. Rockefeller and several dinner guests continued to contribute to AA up to 1945 when they were asked to stop. In March 1940, Larry J. authored a prayer which also became popular in the AA fellowship. It was sometimes called the Texas Prayer. In April 1940, the Alcoholic Foundation office moved from 17 William Street, Newark, New Jersey, to 30 Vesey Street in New York City, and Ruth Hawk became AA's first national secretary. Most of the draft yellow pages and manuscript drafts of the big book were discarded before the move. A difficult loss to AA's archives was the draft of the initial version of the 12 Steps. Larry J.'s Houston Press articles led many to inquire about AA. The Alcoholic Foundation reprinted them as AA's first pamphlet, which they distributed from the New York office. The pamphlet remained popular for several years and was often called the Houston Pamphlet. Alan C. Bartlett was so impressed with the articles that he hired Larry as an editorial writer. However, among all this joy, there was also to be sorrow. As a fair number of AA pioneers did, Larry J. later returned to drinking in 1943, and it led to his death in 1944. A publication called the AA Bulletin was first mailed to groups by the New York office on November 14, 1940. It was intended to inform groups of important events. The bulletin listed a number of cities categorized according to the type of pins, or what they call stars, used to show them on a map in the New York office. Twenty-two cities were classified as White Star, having well-established groups, and Houston was among these 22 cities, the only Texas city listed. Five cities were classified as Red Star, having several members who were just beginning, and four cities were listed as Green Star, having isolated members. Almost five and a half years after its founding, AA had been brought to a total of 31 cities in the United States. On January 14, 1941, Ruth Hawk sent out AA Bulletin No. 2, noting that since November 1940, the 1940 Bulletin, AA was beginning in five more cities and there was some activity in Vancouver, Canada. The Bulletin also had a flash lead item that the Saturday Evening Post would be publishing an article on AA by Jack Alexander and that there would likely be numerous inquiries in response to the article. Members and groups were asked to, quote, stand by for active duty. Jack Alexander's Saturday Evening Post article was published on March 1, 1941, to a readership of over 3 million. Its impact on AA growth was enormous. It was AA's most notable public relations blessing. During 1941, AA membership surged from 2,000 to over 8,000, and reprints of the article became a favored pamphlet and it is still reprinted to this day. Alexander later served as a Class A board trustee from 1951 to 1956. Over 6,000 inquiries were sent to the New York office during 1941 because of the Post article. The New York office asked the groups for donations of $1, oh, and that would be the equivalent of $16 today, per member per year for support for extra staff to respond to all the inquiries. And this began the practice of financing what is today called the General Service Office from group and member donations. In its early years, the New York office was called either the Headquarters or Central Office or General Office. It provided a central mail link to members attempting to start groups and helping them with growing pains. 
Over time, the accumulated letters sent in by the groups gave firm signals of a need for guidelines to help with group problems that occurred over and over and over. Basic ideas for the traditions came from these letters and the principles defined in the foreword to the first edition Big Book. In March 1941, two years after the first printing, the wording of Step 12 was changed in the second printing of the Big Book. The term spiritual experience was changed to spiritual awakening, and the term as the result of these steps was changed to as the result of those steps. An appendix titled Spiritual Experience was added. Many members thought that they had to have a sudden spectacular spiritual experience similar to the, the one Bill had in Towns Hospital. The appendix emphasized that most spiritual experiences developed slowly over time and were of the educational variety. The earliest discovered Texas inquiry about the Jack Alexander Saturday Evening Post article is a March 12, 1941 letter from Jack D. of San Antonio. He asked to purchase a copy of the big book and be put in touch with any local AA member. Ruth Hopp replied to him that there was no AA fellowship in San Antonio, and she asked Jack if he would be willing to be the San Antonio contact for AA inquiries. Another appeal for help sent to the New York office as a result of the Jack Alexander article was a May 4, 1941 letter from Esther E. of Houston. She also asked to be put in touch with a local AA member. Esther would later play a key role in AA history as a pioneer in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Fort Worth. One of her personal trademarks was to use green ink for all her handwritten letters. The inquiries received in New York also included a May 25th letter from George McEll of Fort Worth, and he was suffering from cancer and had, had several surgeries. Yet that summer, he started an AA group in Fort Worth. Their first meeting was in June 1941 at George's home at 1710 Washington Avenue, and this was Texas's second group. Ruth Hawk sent out AA Bulletin No. 3 on June 30, 1941, announcing that over 4,400 letters had been answered in the three months since the Saturday Evening Post article was published. Correspondence was being maintained with 116 cities, and that's almost three times the number that was announced the previous January. At the end of the bulletin, Ruth reported on the discovery of a prayer that we today call the Serenity Prayer. The office later printed it on small cards, which they included in the outgoing mail. For years within AA, it was called the AA Prayer instead of the Serenity Prayer. There's much conflicting information in AA literature as to when and from what source the Serenity Prayer originated. The prayer is attributed to Reinhold Niebuhr, whose version differs somewhat from the popular version. On June 21, 1941, Jack D. wrote to Ruth Hock that a small handful of San Antonio members were having weekly luncheons, and they hoped soon to begin weekly meetings. Jack had high praise for Reverend Edward Everett Jones, pastor of St. Mark's Episcopal Church, who later became bishop of San Antonio. Reverend Jones played a leading role in establishing AA in San Antonio. Jack D.'s efforts to start a group came to an abrupt halt in July 1941. A job offer came from the American Red Cross, and Jack left for El Paso. On August 31, 1941, Ruth Hock wrote to the San Antonio members that the New York office would assist in any way possible. Despite repeated attempts to start a group in San Antonio, success would not come until 1945. In August 1941, Clarence S. joined with Abby G. and other Cleveland members to help start AA's first central office. Bill W. also credits Abby G. and the Cleveland Central Office with introducing the principle of rotation to AA. The Jack Alexander article caused the first Dallas inquiry to be sent to the New York office. It was an October 13, 1941 letter from a non-alcoholic judge, Joe M. Hill, to purchase reprints of the article. Judge Hill presided in the corporation court, and he informed the New York office that he would attempt to establish a chapter of AA in Dallas. Meanwhile, two October 1941 Fort Worth Press articles by Leroy Manuel described the 12-step work being done by George McGill. The articles announced that a Fort Worth AA chapter had been established, and those interested could contact the newspaper's city editor to obtain more information. 
On December 1, 1941, the second Dallas inquiry was sent to New York by Kent W. He had just relocated from Miami where he was active in AA work. Kent and Judge Hill joined together. The December 11, 1941 Dallas Morning News carried an article informing the public that a Dallas AA chapter had been formed. On December 31, 1941, the New York office distributed a four-page census of 146 known cities where AA had been established. The cities were classified again according to the color of pins or stars used to show them on a map in the office. Sixty-nine cities were classified as white star, having well-established groups. Forty-three cities were classified as red star, having several members who were just beginning. And 34 cities were listed as green star, having isolated members. Among the 69 cities having well-established groups were Houston and Fort Worth. Houston had 85 members, and Esther E. and Larry J. were the contacts. Fort Worth had 12 members, and George McGill was its contact. Among the 43 Red Star cities, the several members just beginning were Dallas and San Antonio. And finally, among 34 Green Star cities, consisting of isolated AA members, was the city of El Paso. On January 5, 1942, Kent W. wrote to Ruth Hock that the first Dallas AA meeting was scheduled for January 7, 1942 at the White Plaza Hotel. Kent also reported that Dallas's first woman member, Olivia H., was providing great assistance. Kent wrote to Ruth Hock on January 12 that there were 12 attendees at the first meeting and that Judge Hill would be dropping out of the picture because he was not an alcoholic. Ruth Hock left the New York office to marry on February 28, 1942, and Margaret, Bobby B., took her place as national secretary. In April 1942, the national mobilization for World War II drew Kent W. into service in the Army, and efforts to establish an AA group in Dallas came to a standstill. On October 1, 1942, Esther E. notified the New York office that she would likely be relocating to Dallas at the end of the year, and that it was breaking her heart to leave the, New the Houston group. Ralph B., an AA member from Minneapolis, transferred to Dallas for war work in October 1942. In mid-December, he wrote to the New York office to ask if there was a local group or member he could contact. George McGill in Fort Worth also wrote to the New York office that Lucian W., an AA member from Philadelphia, had contacted him seeking help to start AA in Dallas. In late December, the New York office notified Lucian W. that Ralph B. would be contacted and hoped that the two could join forces. Lucian replied on December 30th that he would contact Ralph after the New Year holiday. Ralph and Lucian joined together in early 1943. However, the crisis of World War II again intervened and Lucian was transferred to Chicago for war work. In late January, Ralph B. wrote to the New York office that he would carry on alone. However, events in Dallas would soon take a very positive turn. But not so for Fort Worth. The National AA Census showed Fort Worth dropping to five members. George McGill was still listed as group secretary, and on February 8, 1943, the New York office wrote to George about a prospect and asked, quote, This is just a short note to determine whether the Fort Worth group is still active. Let us know if your group is still active. In late March 1943, Esther E. informed the New York office that she had relocated from Houston to Dallas and joined with Ralph B. to help get AA started again in Dallas. Esther also reported that she had lived in Dallas from 1927 to 1932 and again from 1935 to 1940. Esther and Bobby E., uh, Bobby B., maintained a long and wide-ranging correspondence which provides extraordinary details about the history of AA in Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, and San Antonio. Esther wrote to Bobby B. on April 3, 1943, that the new, new Dallas group met for the first time on April 2nd, and the attendees consisted of, quote, three inactive Alkies, one active, and two non-alcoholics. They decided to meet on Tuesday nights at members' homes, and Ralph B. departed from Dallas later that month. In July 1943, Esther wrote to Bobby B. on the new Dallas group stationery 
that the Tuesday night meeting attendance had risen to, quote, eight alkies and four normal humans. <laughs> In mid-August, Esther notified Bobby that she would be going to San Antonio to help get AA started there. She also reported that it was discovered that George McEll had been drinking beer for the last two years and was out of contact with everyone. <laughs> Esther sent a woman she sponsored, Annie May T., to Fort Worth to help get things back on track again. Annie May would do for Fort Worth what Esther did for Dallas. Annie quickly started meetings again together with George McEll, Ralph R., and Mac B., and later rented a room at the Blackstone Hotel for meetings. The National AA Census for October 1943 showed Dallas with 12 members. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram of October 31, 1943, reported on Annie May's 12-step work, and its headline read, quote, Alcoholics Anonymous is ready to salvage human wrecks in Fort Worth, too. The following month, Annie May wrote to Bobby B. that 10 members were attending meetings regularly. The January 1944 National AA Census showed Esther E. as secretary and Dallas membership more than doubling to 25. Fort Worth continued to show a membership of 10 with Annie May T. as secretary. And Fort Worth meetings moved from the Blackstone Hotel to the downtown YMCA on Wednesday night. Communications to and from groups was greatly aided by the publication of two newsletters, the Cleveland Central Bulletin and the AA Grapevine. The Central Bulletin began publication in October 1942 and the Grapevine in June 1944. The Grapevine became AA's official magazine and played a critical role in the development of the Traditions and General Service Conference. Both publications provide a significant amount of early group and fellowship history. A January 1945 Grapevine article by Merle S. Dallas paid tribute to Esther E., Merle reported that Dallas membership had risen to 50 and that the group moved into a small clubhouse. The February 1945 National AA Census showed 28 Fort Worth members, uh, and the group moved to the First Presbyterian Church Annex in downtown Fort Worth. In March, Esther informed the New York office that the Dallas group moved into a new clubhouse at 912 1⁄2 Main Street. By the mid-1940s, the letters sent to the New York office by groups and members led to reliable conclusions on what practices worked well and those that didn't. Groups were also asked to send in all their membership rules, and it provided quite a shock. If all the membership rules were applied everywhere, it would be impossible for any alcoholic to join A. In April 1945, Earl T., founder of AA in Chicago, suggested to Bill W. that the experiences sent in from group and member letters might be codified into a set of principles to offer tested solutions to avoid future problems. And Earl had a major role in the development of traditions, both the long and the short form. Rosalind N. wrote to Bobby B. on April 21, 1945, that she would be the new secretary for San Antonio. Rosalind reported that San Antonio at long last had a group and that there were eight men and two women at their last closed meeting. Rosalind further noted in her letter, quote, Of course, our patron saint is Esther, and we are so grateful to her for her efforts. And when World War II ended, gasoline rationing and travel restrictions were lifted. There were an estimated 500 AA groups and 14,000 members who began to gather together more frequently in larger meetings, at first locally with one-day programs and then among several towns in an area and soon even regionally with weekend conferences. The first national AA meeting was organized by the Cleveland groups in June 1945 to celebrate AA's 10th anniversary. Technically, it could be called the first international convention, but it was not promoted as such. Announcements went out through the Central Bulletin and Grapevine, and over 2,500 attendees gathered in Cleveland for the celebration. Visitors came from 36 states, Canada, and Mexico, and activities included a dinner, a dance, and open house celebrations by four local groups. The 10th anniversary meeting took place on Sunday afternoon at the Cleveland Music Hall with Dr. Bob and Bill as the featured speakers. 
On Sunday evening, the Akron groups hosted a Founders Day dinner at the Mayflower Hotel. Featured speakers were again Bill W. and Dr. Bob, plus Bill D., AA number three, and Earl T., founder of AA in Chicago. The July 1945 grapevine in Cleveland Central Bulletin reported on the weekend celebration. In Cleveland, Bill W. told his story about meeting Dr. Bob and voiced a very moving tribute to his co-founder. Quote, although we have had many differences, we have never had an angry word. Dr. Bob told his story and he reflected on, quote, blindly groping for the truth in the early AA days by trial and error. He said that although he wanted to avoid religious discussion, he spent at least an hour a day for the past ten years reading the Bible. At the Akron Founders Day dinner, Bill W. described Akron as, quote, where the AA beacon was lit. The National AA Census for July 1945 showed Dallas membership as 50 and Fort Worth membership more than double to 57. On August 6, 1945, Bill W. wrote a very poignant letter to George McKell, who was suffering from terminal cancer. Bill wrote, quote, I am told that you are sick, very sick, they say, and that in spite of this, people are brought to your bedside for help with their problems. I want you to know that this story has inspired one beyond telling. It is such demonstrations that really mean something, that answer the question, how does AA work when the going is really tough? The ending of World War II and demobilization also marked a period of rapid growth in AA as members of the armed forces returned to the United States in civilian life. Bill W. wrote in AA Comes of Age that the period from 1945 to 1950 was one of immense strain and test. The three main issues were money, anonymity, and what was to become of AA when its old-timers and founders were gone. Bill began his most intense and exhaustive work of forming the traditions and creating a service structure to carry on after he and Dr. Bob were gone. The August 1945 grapevine carried Bill's first traditions essay titled Modesty, One Plank for Good Public Relations and it began his five-year campaign for the Traditions and the General Service Conference. The August 1945 grapevine also had a salute to Esther E. on her fourth anniversary of sobriety. The article stated that she was the founder of AA in Dallas and San Antonio. On New Year's Day 1946, Fort Worth meetings moved to a two-story red brick clubhouse at 612 West Sports Street. The group began a newsletter called the Arid Pilgrim and named itself Group One. Membership had grown to 102, and a full-time secretary lived in the club to handle 12-step calls. A 1946 Fort Worth Press news article by Amy Jo Long recounted the club's beginnings and provided many informative details on early 12-step work and practices. The headline of the article noted that the group went, quote, from P.O. Box to Swank Clubhouse. The January 1946 National AA Census showed 75 members for Dallas, and uh, George McL, AA number one in Fort Worth, died of cancer on March 9, 1946. His efforts to carry the AA message brought together the pioneering members that firmly established AA in Fort Worth. The February 1946 AA directory showed a total of 14 registered groups in the state of Texas. They are in alphabetical order, and please bear with me. Austin, Beaumont, Coleman, Corpus Christi, Dallas, El Paso, Fort Worth, Houston, Kerrville, Laredo, Longview, Nacogdoches, McKenzie, San Antonio, and Schulenburg Prison Unit, and Waco. Four additional groups are handwritten on the directory pages. They are Abilene, Amarillo, Galveston, and Hamilton. The April 1946 Grapevine issued carried Bill W.'s essays titled 12 Suggested Points for AA Tradition. They later came to be called the long form of the traditions. Bill started to feel out the Alcoholic Foundation Board and members on the idea of representatives from various geographical areas coming together as an elected service conference. The board and Dr. Bob were not very enthusiastic about the idea. In April 1946, Esther E. informed the New York office that the Dallas group would have to vacate its club room. Esther also report, reported that problems were occurring over what she described as her, quote, 
complete lack of organizational and business sense, and complete lack of interest in same. The matter of concern was over the management of the clubhouse. July 1946, Grapevine carried an article by Esther E. recounting her efforts to get AA started in Dallas, San Antonio, and the Army's North Camp Hood disciplinary barracks. The issue also reported that the Dallas group had approximately 150 members and was searching for permanent quarters. The October 1946 grapevine announced the formation of the Dallas Suburban Group, and its parent group took on the name of the Downtown Group. Total membership of the two groups was reported as over 200, and they cooperated by holding weekly open meetings together. Later that month, Esther E. wrote to the New York office that the division in, into the downtown and suburban groups was friendly and cooperative and that there were no ill feelings. The February 1947 National AA Census reported that Fort Worth Group No. 1 membership was 275. The following March, Esther E. informed the New York office that Ralph B. was in town and he was the member that she first met when she arrived in Dallas. Ralph started drinking again after leaving Dallas in April 1943, but he was now sober almost two years with the Cincinnati group. The April 1947 grapevine reported that Dallas had over 300 members, with about 200 in the downtown group and the others in the suburban group. After a difficult year of talks on policy and structure, Bill W. wrote an April 1947 paper titled Our AA Journal Service Center, The Alcoholic Foundation of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. It outlined a history of the foundation and recommended a general service conference and renaming the Alcoholic Foundation Board to the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous. The trustees' reactions were at first defensive and then outright negative. They saw no need for change. Most members today would not associate the seeds of the traditions and concepts with the years 1946 and 1947, respectively. AA was on the verge of its teenage years, and a visionary Bill W. was laying the groundwork for its coming of age. On January 12, January 22, 1948, Dick P. informed the New York office that the Dallas Central Office had been opened for two days and that he was the office secretary. The office was located at 1910 Commerce Street. Total Dallas membership was listed as 254 with seven affiliated groups, and only one of those groups exists today, and it's the Oak Cliff Group in Dallas. The club on 4th Street in Fort Worth was named the Harbor Club in early 1948, and the name came from member Joe C. in a contest. The February 1948 grapevine announced the itinerary for a planned trip by Bill W. and his wife Lois to Canada, the West Coast, Texas, St. Louis, and Chicago. On February 11, 1948, the Dallas Central Office sent out a letter announcing that Bill and Lois would be visiting Texas on April 20th and 21st. Bill had chosen Lubbock and Dallas as centers where the groups in the areas might meet and talk with him on a proposal to hold what was then called, quote, regional AA conferences, or what we today call area assemblies. Bill was willing to talk to an open gathering, but he also asked for a meeting of AA members only, where he could discuss the traditions and proposal for an annual conference of representatives from the regional conferences, or what we today call the General Service Conference. A dinner was held for Bill at the Golden Pheasant Restaurant in Dallas, and in the photo he is sitting next to Esther E., the man in front of the photo leaning over the table is Owen L., who three years later, in 1951, served as a Northeast Texas area delegate to the First General Service Conference. Bill and Lois also found time to visit the Fort Worth Harbor Club and signed the guest book. In June 1948, Dr. Bob was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he closed his office and retired from practice. In his last year, he fulfilled a lifelong dream of obtaining a convertible automobile, a Buick Roadmaster. Bill W. was spurred into greater urgency as Dr. Bob's illness progressed, and he pressed harder for a general service conference to take the place of the AA founders. It resulted in hot debates and a serious rift developed between him and the Class B or the alcoholic trustees over what they called Bill's, quote, sledgehammer tactics. 
In AA Comes of Age, Bill admits to writing a sizzling memo that nearly blew the Alcoholic Foundation apart. It caused four trustees to submit letters of resignation. Bill W. wrote each of them a letter of apology, and the resignations were either withdrawn or not accepted at the next board meeting. The Harbor Club was incorporated and chartered by the Texas Department of State on May 3, 1948. And on August 11, 1948, the club purchased an old mansion at 1008 10th Street and restored it to magnificent condition. Bill W. may have had the place in mind when writing about clubs in AA Comes of Age, where he stated, quote, scores and scores of club rooms and clubhouses now dot our landscape. Some of the more elegant ones, especially those in Texas, have to be seen to be believed. Earl T. of Chicago suggested to Bill W. that the 12 suggested points for AA tradition would benefit from revision and shortening. Bill, with Earl's help, developed the short form of the traditions, which were first published in the centerfold of the November 1949 grapevine. When the 12 and 12 was published in 1953, two wording changes were made to the 1949 version. The term primary spiritual aim in Tradition 6 was changed to primary purpose, and the term principles above personalities in Tradition 12 was changed to principles before personalities. Given the success of the 1945 10th anniversary celebration held in Cleveland, the Cleveland Group proposed celebrating AA's 15th anniversary with an international conference. Several locations throughout the country had expressed interest as well. In a letter to the chairman of the organizing committee, Bill W. indicated that he was skeptical of setting a precedent for a large international gathering unless there was good reasons for it. And then he went on to specify two good reasons for the event. The first was honoring Dr. Bob, obviously the last opportunity to do so given his illness, and second, acceptance of the 12 traditions. The March 1950 Cleveland Central Bulletin and April 1950 Grapevine announced the event. The April 1, 1950 Saturday Evening Post carried an article by Jack Alexander titled The Drunkard's Best Friend, and it reported that, quote, Texas takes AA with enthusiasm, too. In the ranch sector, members drive or fly hundreds of miles to attend AA square dances and barbecues, bringing their families. In metropolitan areas such as Dallas, Fort Worth, there are upwards of a dozen oil millionaire members and Fancy quarters have been established in old mansions, and the brethren and their families rejoice, dance, and drink coffee and soda pop amid expensive furnishings. And that's true. There's quite a few millionaires uh, that were members of AA in Fort Worth and Dallas in the 1940s. On Friday, July 28, 1950, AA's first international convention opened in Cleveland, Ohio, with approximately 3,000 people in attendance. Registration was $1.50 per person. That would be the equivalent of $14 today. Bill W. chronicled the proceedings in the September 1950 Grapevine article titled We Come of Age, which can be found in the book The Language of the Heart. And this was the only international convention attended by Dr. Bob, who was very determined to be there despite the progression of his terminal cancer. The program of the Cleveland International consisted of a series of meetings from Friday through Sunday at various hotels and the Cleveland Auditorium Music Hall was reserved for Saturday afternoon to offer the traditions for approval. Contrary to popular belief, the short form of the traditions was not approved at the 1950 convention. The wording of what was approved by the attendees was quite different than both the long and short forms of the traditions we know today. Bill W. was asked to sum up the traditions for the attendees and he did so by paraphrasing a variation of the traditions shown in the slide and which can be found in the book, The Language of the Heart. Notably missing from what Bill recited were the principles embodied in Tradition 10 of AA having no opinion on outside issues and not drawing the AA name into public controversy. Nevertheless, the traditions as recited by Bill were approved unanimously. On July 30, 1950, a gravely ill Dr. Bob made a brief appearance at the Sunday big meeting for what would be his last talk. In the fall of 1950, Bill W. visited Dr. Bob in Akron, Ohio for their last visit together. Bill informed Dr. Bob that the board would soon give its consent to a multi-year trial period for the General Service Conference, 
Dr. Bob gave Bill his endorsement as well. His final words to Bill were, quote, let's keep it simple. Dr. Bob, age 70, passed away on November 16, 1950. In his 15 years of sobriety, he helped more than 5,000 alcoholics, and he never took any fee for his professional services. In his eulogy, Bill W. described Dr. Bob as, quote, the prince of the 12-steppers. Dr. Bob served as a Class B trustee on the Alcoholic Foundation Board from its inception in 1938 up to 1944, and again from 1949 to the time of his death. Class H trustees Leonard Harrison and Bernard B. Smith resolved a five-year conflict between Bill W. and the Alcoholic Foundation Board on having a general service conference. Smith, who Bill would later call the architect of the service structure, chaired a trustees committee uh, that recommended that conferences be held on an experimental basis from 1951 to 54, and that in 1955 it would be evaluated and a final decision made. On April 20, 1951, 37 United States and Canadian delegates, which were half the planned number, convened at the Commodore Hotel in New York City as the first panel of the General Service Conference. Panel 1 delegates from Texas were Olin L. from Dallas and Icky S. from Sheridan, uh, from Houston. Uh, Icky later moved to Dallas and became the first Class B trustee from Texas in 1955. The conference unanimously approved several advisory actions, among them that AA literature should be conference approved. Northeast Texas area Panel 1 delegate Olin L. had an article published in the June 1951 grapevine in which he revealed that he was a little over five years sober when selected as a delegate. Olin and Bill W. became very close friends. In the summer of 1951, the Lasker Award was offered to Bill W. by the American Public Health Association. Bill refused the award for himself, but he suggested it be given to AA as a whole, and the Lasker Foundation replied favorably. The trustees voted to accept the reward, subject to conference approval by postal mail poll of the delegates. They declined a cash grant of $1,000, which would be equivalent to $9,000 in today's dollars. On April 23, 1952, Panel 2, consisting of 38 additional delegates, joined with Panel 1 for the first conference of all delegates attending. Texas Panel 2 delegates were Robert S. from Lubbock and Roy G. from Austin. Based on the 1951 advisory action on conference-approved literature, the board formed a trustees committee to recommend literature items that should be retained and future literature items that would be needed. Bill W. also reported on his literature projects. The board's proposals and Bill's projects were unanimously approved. There are not specific advisory actions, but by approving existing literature to be retained, the conference retroactively approved the big book and the long form of the traditions. The second Northeast Texas area delegate to the experimental conferences was Panel 3 delegate Doc B, and he started AA in Palestine. Board Chairman Bernard B. Smith reported to the 1953 conference that the corporate name of Works Publishing had been changed to Alcoholics Anonymous Publishing. The first conference-approved book to be distributed under the new publishing name was The Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, and it contains the final wording of the short form of the traditions as we know them today. And this is where and when the short form of the traditions were conference-approved. In 1953, a New York member collaborated with Panel 1 delegate Olin L. of Dallas to take Ebby T. to Texas for treatment at a clinic run by Cersei W. After some early troubles, Ebby found sobriety in Texas, and he stayed for eight years. He also found steady employment for several years. In 1954, Ralph J. and his wife Mary Lee invited Ebby for a lengthy stay at their sheep ranch near Ozona. Panel 1 delegates Olin L. and Icky S. virtually adopted Ebby, and Cersei W. became Ebby's Texas sponsor. About five years after acquiring the Penn Street Mansion, the Harbor Club put it up for sale, and this led to constructing a new building at 3000 West 5th Street in Fort Worth. It was occupied on December 16, 1953, and remains the current location of the historic club. On June 11 to 13, 1954, the 9th Texas State Conference of AA was held in Fort Worth at the Hotel Texas, and Bill W. spoke at the conference four times. 
Bill's talk on June 12, 1954 was supposed to be on the 12 traditions. Instead, he spoke on how the big book was put together. And this talk is one of the most popular and widely circulated audio tapes and transcriptions among the AA membership. While the General Service Conference was in its trial period, Bill W. had declined most public speaking engagements since 1951. He reputedly accepted the invitation to the 1954 Texas State Conference to show his gratitude for the help given to his sponsor, Evie T., who was then living in Dallas. Evie had his longest period of sobriety while living in Texas. The 1955 General Service Conference convened in St. Louis, Missouri on June 26 to 29th and again on July 3rd. Seventy-five delegates unanimously recommended adoption of a permanent conference charter subject to the approval of the Second International Convention that would convene in St. Louis on July 1st. The final conference session was to be held on the afternoon of July 3rd in conjunction with the International Convention. A's 20th anniversary and Second International Convention was held in St. Louis's Keele Auditorium from July 1st to 3rd, 1955. Estimated attendance was 3,800, and its theme was coming of age. This historic convention introduced a new circle and triangle symbol prominently displayed on a large banner draping the back of the stage. Bill W. later wrote in AA Comes of Age that the circle represented the whole of AA, and the triangle represented AA's three legacies of recovery, unity, and service. And Bill gave major talks on each of the three legacies, and they were titled, How We Learn to Recover, How We Learn to Stay Together, and How We Learn to Serve. The 2 p.m. Sunday afternoon meeting was designated as the last session of the General Service Conference. It's the only time in the history of the conference that it has been open to the participation of AA members. At the invitation of Chairman Bernard B. Smith, Bill W. presented a resolution to the attendees, the heart of which read, quote, Be it therefore resolved that the General Service Conference of Alcoholics Anonymous should become, as of this date, July 3, 1955, the guardian of the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, the perpetuator of the world services of our society, the voice of the group conscience of our entire fellowship, and the sole successors to its co-founders, Dr. Bob and Bill. And the resolution was unanimously approved. The second edition Big Book was introduced at the 1955 International Convention at a retail price of $4.50, and that would be the equivalent of $38 today. It contained 30 new personal stories. Bill W. renumbered the pages of the second edition so that page one began with Bill's story instead of the doctor's opinion. It's not known why he did this, but there has been some very creative and entertaining speculation on that. <laughs> The December 1955 grapevine carried a painting by volunteer illustrator Robert M. of a man on a bed being 12-stepped by two members. The painting's title originally was Came to Believe. In 1973, when the book Came to Believe was published, grapevine editors changed the painting's name to The Man on the Bed to avoid confusion. It is probably the most popular image in AA today. In 1956, the wording of Step 12 changed again in the second printing of the second edition Big Book. The term, as the result of those steps, was restored to its original form as the result of these steps. A.E.'s popular slogan plaques were first published in five grapevine issues from September to December 1956 and February 1957. Four slogans are from the Big Book, but for the grace of God is from the chapter There is a Solution, Easy Does It, First Things First, and Live and Let Live are from the chapter of the family afterward. Live and Let Live can also be found in the chapter to wives. The slogan, Think, 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 is a bit of a mystery. Some say, <laughs> some say it originated in Cleveland, Ohio in the mid-1940s. However, its actual source is unknown. The 1957 conference approved publication of AA Comes of Age. Guised as a three-day diary of the 1955 convention, it is, in fact, a definitive history of AA up to 1955. One version, printed by Harper and Brothers, was sold in commercial bookstores, and the other version was sold at a discounted price within AA. Esther E. passed away on June 3, 1960, with a little over 19 years of sobriety. 
1955, 14 years after she first wrote to the New York office for help, she had her big book story published in the second edition under the title, A Flower of the South. The story was removed in the fourth edition. Esther donated her first edition big book, which is signed by Bill W., to the Dallas Intergroup Association, and it is on display in the office. Her legacy to Texas is substantial. She helped to either form or revive AA in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Fort Worth, and probably lent a direct helping hand to dozens of other Texas cities. The 1962 conference unanimously approved Bill W.'s manuscript titled Twelve Concepts for World Service. With the publication of this book, all the spiritual principles of AA's three legacies of recovery, unity, and service were defined and explained in detail. Fort Worth Group 1 held meetings at the Harbor Club for almost two decades. In 1965, a division occurred causing some of the members to leave the club setting, but keeping the name Group 1. Group 1 became inactive in 1977. The members that remained at the club formed the Harbor Group. On March 21, 1966, Ebby T. died of emphysema. Some believe that he died drunk, and it's not true. He was two and a half years sober when he passed away. Bill loyally referred to Ebby as his sponsor throughout his life. The U.S. copyright to the first edition Big Book expired in April 1967 and was not renewed. It was not discovered until 1985 when it was also discovered that the copyright for the second edition had lapsed in 1983. It should be noted, however, that the Big Book copyright has expired only in the United States. It is still in force outside the United States under international treaty agreements. Over 10,000 attendees from 50 states and 27 countries met in, Miami, in the Miami, Florida Convention Hall in June, July 1970 for AA's 5th International Convention and 35th anniversary. The convention theme was unity, and Bill W. appeared on Sunday morning for what would be his last public appearance. His health had severely weakened due to emphysema. He was confined to a wheelchair and required the administration of oxygen. On January 24, 1971, William Griffith Wilson, age 75, co-founder of AA and 36 years sober, died at 11.30 p.m. at the Miami Heart Institute in Miami Beach, Florida. The date was also Bill and Lois's 53rd wedding anniversary. Bill W. was the architect and author of AA's three legacies of recovery, unity, and service, and all the written works that explain them. And this was an amazing achievement because he had no training at all as a writer. In 1990, Life magazine named Bill W. as one of the 100 most important Americans of the 20th century. Similarly, in 1999, Time magazine named Bill W. as one of the 100 international heroes and icons of the 20th century. I mentioned at the beginning that the presentation was going to end at the point of Bill W.'s passing. So I'd like to sum up. AA's story began with a five-month sober and still shaky stockbroker from New York who had his last drink, which was a beer, in December 1934. While on a failed business trip to Akron, Ohio, he met an alcoholic surgeon who desperately wanted to stop drinking. And he had his last drink, also a beer, in June 1935. It's probably safe to say that when AA's co-founders met, they had no idea at all of the fellowship of alcoholics that would evolve from their humble meeting and how that fellowship would save the lives of millions of alcoholics over the next seven decades. Their legacies are today described as recovery, unity, and service. They were our gifts to freely receive, and it is our duty to freely give them away. And it's been a remarkable journey down the road of happy destiny. Uh, before concluding, I'd like to announce that the Archives Committee members offer a, a CD if you like this uh, particular presentation. We have a CD available that, uh, that has three times the amount of information that it's in. And it's one of the things we use to, to help offset our, our travel expenses when we don't get uh, reimbursed by the host. Uh, they're $5 a piece, and all the uh, proceeds go to the Archives Committee entirely. And uh, it includes uh, scanned manuscript copies of the big book, AA Comes of Age and Twelve Concepts of World Service, and a third legacy pamphlet. 
And there's a copy of the 1985 history of AA by past GSO manager Bob P. that was canceled by the conference. Uh, there's a narrative timeline of AA history and a 350-page AA history ebook. The timeline and ebook are the sources of all the various PowerPoint presentations offered. And that concludes the presentation. I hope you found it both informative and enjoyable. And I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.